Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I am Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, we're recording this here two days after Christmas. And I hope that you had a great Christmas. I know that I did. And um, one of the things that we did during the Christmas break was, was with all the kids and they ranged from eighth grade to can point and say only a few words in terms of their ages. And we got all kinds of questions that came out of here, some of which are, actually most of which are not have any context in the Gospels, but all of them are about Jesus and Jesus being fully human. And one that Teresa and I have been debating about for like five days now, pretty much going back and forth on, is did Jesus have a dog? Did Jesus have a dog? Yes. Okay, <laughs> we get a feeling that the most of these questions might might go that way because it's a lot of um, stuff that as we look at it, you know Jesus being fully human and and going through that that was one of the questions that that we were going back and forth and the logic not really being scripturally based at all was dogs are awesome Jesus was awesome therefore Jesus would have a dog <laughs> and that was pretty much where I was coming from there and. Um, you can see there's actually no context in the Bible for that, but that was one of the many types of questions that we had um, going through with the yeah, children. Of it. It's the kind of question that you'd have to investigate what the culture was like at the time of Jesus. I don't know if anybody had a dog at the time of Jesus. I don't know what the, uh, what the practice of having pets was at the time of Jesus. There were probably uh, sheep dogs. I don't know. There's... Uh, there's a reference to a dog as a pet in the book of Tobit. It's the only reference to a pet in the whole scriptures, I believe. Um, but anyway, it would just depend on the cultural practice. So to apply a theological principle, Jesus is uh, hes fully human, and he is totally enculturated. He lives in the culture of his time, insofar as that culture is uh, moral, and certainly having pets is moral. Another side point, for example, the treatment of women was not always fully moral. And mm -hmm. so that's why we see Jesus actually not following the culture of his time and his treatment of women, raising them up and giving them prominence, giving them uh, certain attention. And we see a number of his practices toward women being more uh, according to the gospel than according to the culture. But insofar as the culture is moral, then uh, Jesus lived according to the, the culture of his time and his people. And I don't think there's any Jewish prohibition against pets or dogs or any of that that I'm aware of. And, but I don't know the, the culture of the of first century Palestine well enough to say uh, how likely it was that he had a dog. Or I imagine, you know, there were sheep dogs, but he wasn't a shepherd by trade. He was a carpenter. So I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah, well, that's what we're going to be getting a lot of, like I said, coming from the age group we were having and kind of going to when the gospel says you got to look through your eyes as God, as a child. And a lot of these questions coming from children kind of felt like it would make sense. And one of the things that I think we overlook when dealing with children is that they always know that they're not finished yet in the sense that one day I'll be as fast as my older brother. One day I'll be as big as dad. 
and stuff like that, knowing that they're not as perfect as they're going to be. And one of the questions I got was, was there anything Jesus wasn't good at? Because, you know, you have the insecurities of a children, and she was particularly worried about, you know, playing her instrument in front of everyone and, you know, stage fright and whatnot. But I think that that's something that, you know, they asked me, so I wanted to relay it here, thinking that most of these questions are probably good to teach your own children down the road one day, um, if not now as a listener. But is there anything Jesus wasn't good at? Yeah, you're so right about little children that they have a certain freshness in perspective. They see the world and they ask questions in a way that we haven't thought to because we already resolved certain questions in our minds or we dismiss them as uninteresting or unimportant. And little children have a way of uh, actually gathering together those questions and presenting them to us in a new way. And it makes us think. And apply some of our our insight and understanding and then children also have that humility like you said of being a work in progress and so they don't need to force themselves to become something else they know it's happening sometimes they're a little impatient i can't wait until i'm as fast as my brother i can't wait until i'm as tall as my sister or whatever it is but they don't beat themselves up because they're too slow or too short compared to somebody who's five years or ten years older we have a way of doing that as adults much, much more. We imagine at some point that we've arrived and we ought to be perfect. And then we start beating ourselves up for not being perfect, when in fact, we're still a work in progress. We are always children of the Heavenly Father. And so we shouldn't be pushing ourselves beyond where we are. We need to receive the love of the Father where we are, and that will help us develop in our minds, our hearts, our bodies, to become what the Lord wants us to be. Well, that makes sense. Um, but do we know the answer to the question? Is there anything that he wasn't good at? Is there anything he wasn't good at? Yeah. I'm sorry, I totally missed the question. That's totally fine. <laughs> uh, I, I must have uh, slipped out there a little bit. The, uh, well, he, he could have been not good at a lot of things. There's nothing that says that he had to be... Um, fully developed in terms of, his, of human skills. He may have been a bad carpenter for all we know. There's a, it's, it's likely because he was perfect in virtue, it's, there is a certain amount of our limitation which is a result of, of sin, original sin or, or ongoing sin. We know that when we live a life of dissipation, when we're self-indulgent, we do things we shouldn't do, that it has a way of, of damaging us, damaging our mind, damaging our skills, damaging our bodies. So Jesus wouldn't have suffered any of that damage. But even somebody who is uh, perfect in that sense, truly pure of heart, is not necessarily the best musician in the world, is not necessarily the, the most talented carpenter. There isn't uh, a, a, there's nothing sinful about not being, you know, having certain gifts of creativity or of, of artistry. So, uh, again, that's one of those places where the gospel is silent. It doesn't say that there was anything in particular that he wasn't good at. It leaves that open so that all of us can kind of connect, well, maybe the thing I'm not good at, Jesus also wasn't good at. And that's a very reasonable way to pray, that he certainly understands us from the inside out in the things that we're not good at, in the ways that we're a work in progress, in terms of being unfinished. And so we shouldn't say those things with authority. I know Jesus was a terrible baseball player. 
you know. <laughs> but uh, we could imagine, you know, maybe maybe he was uh, not good at sports. Maybe he was the kid that got left behind. Maybe he tried really hard but was never a great carpenter. Uh, uh, we can imagine that those things would be true. And that actually left to one of the questions I had from it was, was, was he a good carpenter? Obviously, we don't know that answer. But do we know if there's anything that he made that's still around? There's not. Neither he nor St. Joseph. There, there are no relics of their, of their carpentry. So we can imagine neither of them was making world-class works of art. <laughs> <laughs> they were probably doing very simple things. And, uh, and we don't like to imagine that our heroes, Joseph and Jesus, were uh, bad carpenters. But there's nothing preventing that from being the case. It's not a matter of sin to not be excellent at a trade. Obviously, they were good enough to make a living. Mm-hmm. So. Well, on that note, you could be the best carpenter and leave nothing behind. You know, if you're working on roofs all day, you know, sure, or, or sure. building up the walls, that's, you're not really leaving that behind. Okay, so that was just a question. I mean, you know, there's people who make furniture and there's people who work on houses. And if you're doing that, the house side of the fence, I can see how over the years, no house lasts millennia. You know, you're lucky if you get 100 years out of it. You're not getting a couple of well, the, the Holy House in Loretto is said to be Mary's house, which was transported by angels from uh, Ephesus, probably, to, uh, to Loretto. And there's good reason to believe there's the, the carbon dating actually marks parts of the house and even some of the, uh, the, the pollen. They found little artifacts in the house that were actually from Turkey, where Ephesus is, and that date back 2,000 years. So... Um, it may have been repaired and reconstructed, rebuilt somewhat. But anyway, there are some, uh, certainly some relics from 2,000 years ago. Even, it's wonderful, you know, olive trees live that long. So it's likely that some of the olive trees in the Garden of Olives witnessed the agony of Christ in the Garden. Hmm. Um, you know, also, in, in some areas of the Holy Land, there are, there are artifacts that go back that far. So, uh, but anyway, to your point, there are, there's no evidence that... Uh, God chose to miraculously or arrange things to naturally preserve a house that Jesus built. Uh, we don't even know exactly what kind of carpenter, and there's even some argumentation from the uh, early church fathers whether he was a carpenter or an iron worker, or, but the tradition has settled pretty firmly on carpentry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the kinds of details that the, the gospel leaves for our imagination and our prayer. Uh, and our, our theological reasoning and also to make it more accessible by not limiting you know, Jesus in certain ways it makes it possible for all of us to identify with him and that's, uh, that's certainly a, a good Christian principle we should identify with Jesus and his humanity as much as we can yeah yeah and, and that's like I said trying to keep these, these questions along that line um, one of the things that Aside from the beginning Christmas story with Joseph taking Mary to Bethlehem, you don't really hear about how he interacts with Jesus throughout pretty much the rest of his life. And is there more to that story that, you know, it never really gets revealed? You know, he's Saint Joseph, so obviously he's important and he's a saint, but they don't really dive into their interactions together and how that relationship was and we're going to see if there is any knowledge out there on that. 
Well, again, we can apply principles. The, there's scriptural evidence to believe as well as the affirmation of the Christian teaching and the tradition that St. Joseph was the perfect father. It makes sense from a theological perspective that God chooses this perfect father to be the image of himself, to be a father for his own son, to form him in his humanity, and would need some special graces to be able to do that. Jesus was obviously a unique child, and so St. Joseph would be empowered with the grace that he needed to carry out the mission that he was given. That's a theological principle that we can apply. And then the indication that he's a just man, that's really the highest indication of holiness that can be applied to someone. And there are a lot of psalms that talk about the qualities of the just man, the way that he lives, the way that he thinks, the wisdom that he has. And the scripture affirms that Joseph was a just man, righteous man. Uh, and again, the theological tradition has even said that Joseph was without sin, not from the moment of his conception like Mary, but likely sanctified in the womb at least and then lived in uh, an anticipation of the grace that comes to us from the cross so just applying some of those things we can say okay joseph was the holiest father who ever lived that's not an unfair statement to make and i'm uh, in good company with theologians doctors of the church and saints in saying that and then we can say well what are the qualities of the best possible father and now we can start to imagine the kinds of interactions that the holiest son, who is actually God, and the holiest father, who is St. Joseph, what kinds of interactions would they have? And again, the scripture doesn't fill that in, but our imagination and those principles can help us to enter into that. So as a follow-up question to that, why do we make the distinction so much between Mary and Joseph, and that you said that Mary was always without sin. And I, I guess what my question is, is it just because Jesus was conceived inside of her that she got above and beyond? Or, you know, there just always seems to be that, that we put Mary so much further ahead of basically everyone except for Jesus. And I just kind of wonder why St. Joseph isn't right up there as well. A great question. Mary is not only the mother of of Jesus, uh, who is God, and so she's rightly called the mother of God. And we focused on Mary in the early centuries of the church, actually to focus on different teachings about Jesus. So that statement I just made that she is the mother of God, Theotokos is the Greek, the God bearer. She gives birth to God. That was a, a term given to her and then discussed in the Council of, of Ephesus in 431 in order to battle the heresy that said she was only the mother of Jesus, the humanity of uh, the Son of God, and that he became God after she conceived him. Uh, so anyway, not to get too stuck on that point, but if Jesus is God and Mary bears him, then she is the God-bearer. She is the mother of God. Uh, that's not to say that she gave birth to the eternal word, uh, God in his divinity, but anyway, anything we say about the humanity of Jesus 
we can say about God. So we can actually say that God died on the cross because Jesus is God and Jesus died on the cross. Mm -hmm. And that way of speaking and that way of understanding is is important for our Christian theology. But uh, because of her role and because of him, we we focused on uh, on Mary to a certain degree. She also plays a role that goes beyond her because ultimately, in a in a cosmic sense, all of humanity is uh, bridal, is is feminine, is receptive. So there's a a dynamic that happens in male and female that the man initiates and then he conceives life outside of himself. The woman receives and she conceives life inside of herself. In the relationship of God with humanity, God is the one who initiates and conceives life outside of himself, and humanity is the one that receives and conceives life inside of us. So God gives divine life, we receive and conceive divine life inside of us. And so that male-female dynamic is played out in terms of God and humanity, and then that plays out most perfectly in terms of the church. So God conceives life outside of himself, divine life in the church through baptism. So uh, we are born, we are immersed in the waters of baptism, just like a newly conceived baby is immersed in the waters of his mother's womb. He is conceived inside of her, and then she gives birth to him. We are conceived inside of the church, and then the church gives birth to us. So that in that dynamic, God is masculine. It's why we, all, we refer to God as Father, Son, and even Holy Spirit, always as He, because of this masculine dynamic. And really all of us, in humanity and in the church, are a kind of she, a bridal uh, reality. So God gives His life to us, and we receive His life. Now Mary is the one, to come back to her, she does that fully and most perfectly. So she received all of God inside of her. She received the entire Word inside of her. And so she is an icon for all of us. We are all called to be like Mary. We are given the grace to be like Mary, to be fully receptive to the grace of God and all that he wants to conceive in us. Uh, So she has a special role in the economy of salvation. So that's a, a lot of work there, but let me back up one way and say say it like this. There isn't this kind of feminine quality in God. Uh, how do I want to say that? So in regard to creation and humanity, God is all initiating, conceiving outside of himself. In other pagan religions and in pagan mythology, there was a kind of Mother Earth goddess there, there are goddesses in the pantheon, and Christianity, uh, following from Judaism, never had this. We receive, and so in a sense, we become the, the goddess figure in the, in the pantheon, and uh, because divine life is conceived in us, and Mary is the one in whom that happens most perfectly. So she really adds something essential in the in the whole economy of salvation that that we just don't get from Joseph. And furthermore, Joseph, because he's a father, 
it can be a little bit more confusing. He could end up clouding our focus on the Heavenly Father. And so the Christian tradition hasn't emphasized the fatherhood of St. Joseph. It's emphasized the fatherhood of God. But there is no motherhood in God in, in a certain sense. So the, the, uh, we really emphasize the motherhood of Mary, and, and she is the, the mother par excellence. And then she is extended into the motherhood of the church. So she, she offers something really unique. And then even if we look in terms of Jesus, uh, anyway, the, he, he presents that masculine side. Our Lady presents that feminine side in the, in the most perfect way. So that's a lot of work to uh, say that it's because of her, her femininity. It's because she's a woman that we focus on her more. And that's again where Christianity turned everything on its head because the, the kind of disregard that women had in the ancient world was completely turned around by Christianity. We hold as the highest saint, the greatest saint who ever lived, the one conceived without sin is a woman in Christianity and we hold her in the highest regard. And that makes sense. That makes sense. And I, and I think that that will definitely answer that question more than the, the six-year-old who asked it. So that'll be, be, be above and beyond there. One of the other ones that we got was, since Easter's more important, why do we give out presents on Christmas? <laughs> so that was a question we got. Well, uh, start giving out presents on Easter. I'm all in favor of that. That's exactly right. Easter is he will be too. <laughs> Uh, I believe that the practice of giving presents actually derived from the gifts brought by the wise men to the baby Jesus. And in other cultures, in, in the Eastern churches, that gift-giving happens on the Epiphany, on January 6th. But somehow it got pushed back to Christmas, and I don't know the history of that. But I think it's the, the wise men giving presents that started that practice of giving presents. And then kind of the secular world took over and made that a huge thing. The other, the other practice that's traditional is St. Nicholas gave presents. Uh, the, there were three girls who were too poor to have a dowry to afford a wedding, right? That's how that worked in those days. You needed to have enough money to be able to contribute to a, a wedding to a family. So St. Nicholas gave these gold balls. He threw them into the stockings of these girls that were stockings were hanging in the window and then they were able to take in the stocking and use the ball as the dowry and so the St. Nicholas dimension Santa Claus which is celebrated December 6th is the other uh, piece of, of gift giving that got morphed and then those things got merged. Father I definitely want to thank you because there was a bunch of questions that we got here um, and this kind of being the last thought on it uh, this one's a little bit deeper, and this is really more for me than the kids, is, is it right to think that in this way is that Easter is the fulfillment of Jesus and that that's him giving all of himself for us in his death? And Christmas is the fulfillment of the Father and him giving himself to live on this earth with the rest of us. Is that a right way to think of it, or is that completely wrong? Well, 
you, you can never you can never fully make that separation. Anything that happens in creation is always a work of all three divine persons. So the first thing we should say is that you can't push that too far. Okay. Uh, and so then you're you're talking in a little bit more devotional way. Is is Christmas kind of the feast of fatherhood and and uh, Easter is the feast of the Son's gift of new life to us. Um, and then obviously Pentecost is the gift of the Holy Spirit to us. Um, you might be able to make that, that argument. I mean, the Son is really giving himself totally to us in the Incarnation. So he, he, it's not like he was an un, unwilling participant in the process and the Father you know, kind of threw him into time or something like that, and then he had to deal with it and <laughs> make his own choice. But, uh, uh, but we could certainly see the tenderness of the fatherhood. I like making the distinction uh, that Pope Benedict made. He, he called Easter the the feast of faith, and Christmas the feast of love. So it's sort of like Easter is the feast of the mind, if you will, and and Christmas is the feast of the heart. So we have this very kind of sentimental and tender quality to Christmas that. Uh, is, is different than the victory that we experience at Easter. But again, none of, you, you can't push any of these things too far. You can't absolutize any of these things because there's also dimensions of love in the heart in Easter and mm -hmm. there's certainly dimensions of, of the mind and revelation, faith in Christmas. But, uh, but it's nice to make those sorts of contrasts. So uh, your, your proposal that we focus in a particular way on the Father giving his greatest gift to us at Christmas, the Son giving this greatest gift of new life in him to us at Easter, and the Holy Spirit certainly giving himself to us at Pentecost. That's nice. I like that. Yeah, there you go. Came up with something there. So, um, so hopefully that little nugget is, is good for everyone here. Um, again, we released this episode a little bit late this week because of Christmas, but we hope that you guys all enjoyed it. We'll be back to our normal Tuesdays next week, and we hope that you guys have a great week on everyone. Again, please follow us on Twitter and keep giving us the reviews that you have been on iTunes and wherever else you're getting your podcast at. Have a great week, everyone, and thank you very much, Father.